0: Hey, Living Streams family. It's Pastor David here on a Thursday morning, and I have some things I wanted to share with you. It's a new year, and the Christmas decorations are going down, but in my mind, it's time to celebrate Christmasmas. <laughs> uh, for those of you who didn't make it on Sunday morning last week, the word Christmasmas doesn't really mean that much, but um, this podcast is hoping it'll clear up. Um, what I was trying to mean with that phrase. christmas must. um, I just made up the word, but um, what really is important is that we commemorate um, the return of Christ. You see, Christmas is a wonderful celebration of the time when God came into our world as a baby in Bethlehem. This moment is so magnificent and mysterious, we have all kinds of big, obscure uh, theological words to describe it. Words like advent. Incarnation, hypostatic union, uh, Virgin birth—that's a fun one. Um, Christmas is the celebration of all this. A real short summary um, of these words, which will be important for what I want to say later about Christmasmas and the celebration of the the second coming of Christ. Um, Advent, uh, which we which we use to kind of build an anticipation towards the celebration of Christmas Day. Advent just means arrival or appearing. So Christmas is the celebration of the advent of Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Yeah, it's kind of funny to think about. Christ means anointed one, and it is a Hebrew title for the one who would come and make everything right between God and his chosen people, primarily, but also subsequently make everything right between God and mankind, God and creation. That is the title, Christ. So for followers of Jesus, Christmas is the celebration of the arrival of the long-awaited Christ. Now, Jews do not believe that Jesus was the Christ. Um, They are still waiting for Christ to come. Um, So that's why they don't celebrate Christmas. The incarnation, that second word we mentioned, is a theological word to describe when God, who is infinite and almighty, clothed himself with the finitude and frailty of humanity deity took on humanity god took on a bod if you want to go rhyming with it and not just any bod but a helpless baby born to poor parents who could not find any suitable place to spend the night let alone give birth that's the incarnation what a mysterious and wonderful um word that 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 describes wonder that describes hypostatic union that's a real fun one. You could throw that around to people and they'll be so impressed by you. Hypostatic union is a theological word to describe Jesus' nature once he became incarnate. He was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. I know 200% is not possible, but neither is virgin birth. Christmas is the celebration of God doing impossible things like hypostatic union, like virgin birth, like incarnation, like God appearing. Impossible things, they're impossible for us, but not for God. God defied the laws of nature that He created in order to make it abundantly clear who He is and how He feels about us. He loves us and wants us to love Him forevermore. So, cue the Christmas songs, O Holy Night, The Thrill of Hope, Gloria in Excelsis Deo. Never know if I say that quite right, um, but it's fun to sing Christmas time. Cue the angels singing to the shepherds and the extravagant gifts of the wise men. Cue the thousands of years of millions of people spending a whole month to anticipate, commemorate, and celebrate the day when God invaded our space with, space with his infinite grace and beauty and love. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. And that, believe it or not, was all necessary to set up um, what I'm hoping we will understand about what I'm kind of goofily calling Christmasmas. Christmas is such a wonderful and appropriate celebration of the time when God came. But all that celebrating of God coming as a babe in Bethlehem, it always stirs in me um, the promise, a reminder about the promise that God has made that he will come again. So I'm so pumped and grateful and, you know, love Christmas and celebrating that Christ came. But Christ also, while he was here, promised that he would come again. And, and so as I celebrate the coming of Christ, I always just start to feel this stirring and longing for the second coming of Christ. And it's true, Jesus did promise that he would come again. In Matthew twenty four thirty. Uh, Jesus said this, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So he's talking about when he, the Son of Man, is coming again. He's not coming as a baby next time. He's coming with power and great glory. Not only did Jesus make this promise very clear in his teachings, but in Acts chapter 1, we are told about the moment after Jesus had lived for 33 years on earth, After he had died on the cross, after he rose from the dead, and after he spent 40 days showing up to people and hanging out with them, he then ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1 tells us about this time. They were looking intently up to the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said to the disciples, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus... Who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So, not only did Jesus say it, but now some men in white, angels, made it clear that there will be a second advent of Jesus. Just a few chapters after this moment in Acts chapter 1, we have a story in Acts chapter 3 where Peter, one of the guys who hung out with Jesus for his last three years on earth, one of the guys who was with Jesus when he ascended into the clouds, One of the guys who heard the two angels say Jesus was coming again, that Peter, he said this, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And that he may send the Messiah, Mashiach, the Christ, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Based on this, we know Jesus, God the Son, is in heaven awaiting the time when God the Father sends him back into the world the second time. The second time is when Jesus restores everything. And as Tim Keller puts it, and I love it so much, he says, everything sad will come untrue. And somehow be better for having once been broken. That's the restoration that Jesus promised. That Peter is talking about. That those angels promised. That when Jesus comes back, he will restore everything. And everything sad will come untrue. That's like a double woohoo right there. So I want to share a couple of verses with you now. that, um, That describe the second advent. Or the return of Christ. And these verses get me so fired up. Um, they come from Second Thessalonians, and uh, they get me fired up with hope. They really do help me with endurance um, in all the challenges of this life. And, and all of that helps me really be freed up to continue to love well um, in the painful times and the good times and whatever whatever this new year might bring us. Um, So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12. We're going to get a little bit of Antichrist in here. We're going to get the return of Christ. We're going to get a whole bunch of different things in here. So buckle up. We're jumping in. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, and our being gathered together with him, We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. So first of all, Paul is saying he doesn't want us to be ignorant or gullible when it comes to the day Jesus will return. He calls it the day of the Lord, which is important for Bible students. Then he goes on to say in verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Again, to be solid in your understanding of the return of Christ, so you won't get deceived, Paul says, because before the return of Christ, some bad mamma jamma is going to appear. You get that? When the bad man appears, it will probably seem like the second coming of Christ. That's how tricky the devil is. He's a mimicker, a counterfeiter, a fraud, but a really good one. Even at times, we're told he shows up as an angel of light, or like, in this situation, shows up like a Christ. He exalts himself as God, this man of lawlessness. He sets up his fake God business in the temple of God, and he tells everyone he is God, that he is the Christ, who has come to restore everything, but he is a deceiver and a destroyer. So, real quick summary. Paul's saying, hey, you got to understand this stuff. This is some important stuff. And um, there will come a rebellion, a man of lawlessness, all of that type of stuff. Then he goes on in verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Paul again reiterates how the details of the return of Christ, return of Jesus, are to be a basic understanding for followers of Christ. And then he says two other things. First, the man of lawlessness, and we are right to call this man the Antichrist, um, but the man of lawlessness is already at work. John the Apostle echoes this in his epistle when he says, The spirit of Antichrist is coming and already at work. 1 John 4.3 Then the second thing he says in this section is there is something holding back the spirit of Antichrist and the man of lawlessness from being revealed. He uses the word restrains, which is katecho, something like that in the Greek. And what it means is to hold back or to hinder. So the Bible student here asks the question, what is the thing that is holding back or restraining the full revelation of the Antichrist? It's a great question. Um, Well, to me, it's pretty simple, the answer. It's the Spirit of Christ, which is holding back the Antichrist. And where is the Spirit of Christ? The Spirit of Christ is in each and every follower of Christ. Um, As 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, our bodies are the temple of the Spirit. So somehow, right now, The spirit of Antichrist is at work in the world and is trying to kind of mount this full revelation of Antichrist, but is not able to because the people of God are still doing their job, being temples of the Holy Spirit who is holding back until the right time comes. So, we have that going on. And then we get to my favorite part of this whole passage, verse 8. When Paul says, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This is so Kung Fu Panda and way better. Sorry if you haven't seen Kung Fu Panda. You should see it. It's awesome. Just heard Kung Fu Panda 4 is coming out. They're all awesome. So, But in this we have the Lord Jesus killing the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth. The same breath which spoke the cosmos. The, sorry, the same breath which spoke the cosmos into existence. The same breath, breath which filled the lungs of Adam and Eve, creating consciousness and personality and memory in all aspects of life. The same breath who breathed on his disciples as they received the Spirit of God. No struggle or battle or close call in this in this situation. Just a word from Jesus, and it's over, all over. Then the splendor of his appearance does the rest. His breath kills the enemy, and his splendor spreads out over the earth and the spirit of Antichrist, and everything is all undone, destroyed, erased completely. No more residue of death or pain or fear or evil in any way. Again, the gospel promise of Jesus is so well said by Tim Keller. Everything sad will come untrue, but somehow be better for having once been broken. Triple woohoo right here. Sound effect. I don't have one. But should do it right there. The next verse gives us a little heads up on how to avoid the deception and the perishing um, as we await that day. Verse 9, 10, and 11, and 12. It says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So, kind of the opposite of what um, they're doing. We should love the truth. That's a very important thing that we do as we await the coming of Christ so we won't be deceived. Love the truth. Believe what is true. Even though there will be times where... Things happen to us or things are said or um, popular opinions might go in the opposite direction. We have to continue to believe what Jesus said, what the apostles said, what the scriptures teach us. We have to believe what is true and we need to find our pleasure in righteousness. Um, It's very important for us to um, not be led by our desires, but but to lead our desires in the way that they should go. And it is true that we can cultivate our desires um, in different directions. I can say it real simply. All of you who love coffee, you've done it already. There is no one that took a sip of coffee the first time and thought, Mmm, that's delicious. But over time, you have continued to ruin your taste buds so much so that now when you drink coffee, you think, Oh, I love this stuff. God, the same thing's true with beer. Beer just does not taste good. And and all of you who are like, mm, I love the taste of beer. Well, first time you took beer, every time you give beer to a kid, which I'm not recommending, but you see the look on their face. It's like, oh, I want to die. Well, over time, you, because of peer pressure, because of other different reasons, because of whatever it might be, um, you begin to have the desire for that. So, anyways, that's a little bit of a tangent. But we need to find our pleasure in righteousness in the way of Jesus. Like King David discovered and sang about in Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life, truth. In your presence there's fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's true, there is nothing more pleasing to us when we actually are following Christ. Even though it's hard, but eventually it becomes the sweetest of all paths of life. Um, Know Jesus, follow Jesus' path, find the pleasures that are there in his presence and at his right hand. Proximity to Jesus is God's plan for you and I, and his joy is what he wants to give us. So, up to this point, we have discussed the return of Christ, the Antichrist. And we haven't hit on some important words like tribulation, rapture, Armageddon, um, these are words that go hand in hand when we talk about return of Christ or the Antichrist or uh, another theological word, eschatology, which is just the study of final things or end times. So we're going to talk a little bit about tribulation, rapture, and Armageddon um, for just a moment here because I know some of you, those words are very important to you. So, and they are they are to me too. Um, I can say a little bit about those from this passage to 2 Thessalonians 2. When the man of lawlessness is revealed, which we just talked about, that will be the time of great tribulation on the earth. Probably akin to something like the Holocaust or the great terror um, in Russia or the differing genocides, but more encompassing and more intense, sad to say. And those who do not f- join what the Antichrist is doing will be destroyed for a time, as Revelation says, a time, time, and half a time. And Revelation and some of the words and teachings of Jesus give us a little fuller picture of what this tribulation might might look like and feel like. Um, but again, we're going to try and stick with Second Thessalonians right now. So that's the great tribulation. Definitely will be there um, prior to the return, the final return of Christ. And then rapture, although I don't think the Bible and church history give us tons of clarity on the rapture of the church like they do for the return of Christ and Antichrist, here in Second Thessalonians 2, you can see a potential support for it. Paul writes, Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Uh, when what is restraining the Antichrist is out of the way, the Antichrist, man of lawlessness, will be revealed. Like I said, I believe the spirit of Jesus in the followers of Jesus is what is holding back the Antichrist from being revealed. So a rapture of the church, if all of the church people were taken up or caught up with the Lord in the sky, um, that would take out that which is restraining the Antichrist. Um, So that seems to be a possible solution to what is saying there. Um, but there are also other ways for the church to be taken out of the picture besides rapture, but they are not very comforting. And, uh, and so we're left with that from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The word Armageddon, that's a fun word. Um, it's the word to describe the final battle where the bloodshed is so intense it becomes as deep as a horse's bridle. Revelation 14.20 um, gives us that imagery. In Revelation, we also get a lot of other apocalyptic imagery of the Antichrist's man and demon armies um, gathering in the Valley of Megiddo, which is where the word Ar- Armageddon comes from. Um, they, va- they all gather in the Valley of Megiddo to wage war against Christ and his angel armies coming out of the sky. It's kind of epic battle scene. Um, and it also gives us the imagery of the birds all gathering around to eat up all the dead flesh after the war. Intense stuff. Here in Second Thessalonians 2, Armageddon is a lot simpler than we have in Revelation. The focus is not on the human battle and bloodshed, but on the moment Jesus appears. There is no contest between good and evil, God and the devil. Just like when the light shows up, the darkness instantly is gone. Just like one drop of the righteous blood of Jesus can make the darkest stain of sin white as snow. Just like... Love can warm and melt a hate-filled heart of stone. The appearing of Jesus will erase all evil and everything that is Antichrist forevermore. Now I know there are probably a lot of questions and I would love to hear them um, about those things. But for now, we'll wrap this one up. The way I want to wrap it up is with really two questions. The first is, why did the first appearing of Christ not get rid of evil and Antichrist forevermore? And second is, like, why do we have to wait for the second appearing of Christ for everything sad to come untrue? Um, And these are good questions that I will take a stab at answering, at least to what has helped me um, wrestle with these questions. Uh, The first uh, is just all focused on the first advent of Jesus. It was clearly to do a couple of things. Um, first, it was it was very important that first advent because Christ was taking back the title deed of the earth. Now that might be a little bit obscure sounding, but Revelation 6 gives us the imagery of God the Father sitting on his throne with a book or scroll in his lap. The book has seven seals keeping it locked up. All of heaven was there, and it almost seems like they were still, not quite sure what to do because no one was worthy to break the seals and open the book. Later, we get to see that the the book actually, once it's open, brings about the refining and restoration of all creation and the healing of all nations. So it's this important thing. And John, who was writing the, the Revelation imagery, he's overcome with weeping because no one is able to open the book of restoration. Then, in a moment, he sees Jesus come into the room. He knows it's Jesus because this, this being, this person looks like a lamb who had been slain. And interestingly enough, John was the only disciple that was at the cross when Jesus was dying. So John recognizes him as Jesus. He describes him as a lamb who had been slain. And Jesus walks up to the throne and breaks the seals and opens the book. Um, So what this was saying was that Jesus came as a babe in Bethlehem in order to take back for God what was lost. And to do a little bit of Bible work here, the first Adam was given dominion over the earth. God gave it, um, but then Adam gave it to the devil for a bite of the fruit. That's the Genesis account. The devil has used that dominion to bring pain and hate into the world. Through the incarnation, Jesus became the second Adam and through his sinless life and righteous sacrifice on the cross, he actually purchased back creation from the devil for God. So through Jesus's coming as that babe, he became a second Adam. He became a second shot for humanity. And, and through his righteous life, sinless life, righteous blood, sinless blood, death and resurrection, he actually in that act became worthy to take back, to purchase back everything for God from the devil. And fascinating enough, when when the devil tempted Jesus, he actually says to Jesus, hey, if you bow down, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm only going to worship the Father. Um, And so there was kind of even a, a nod towards the reality that Satan does have some dominion. But at the cross, Jesus has purchased all that back. And now Jesus has all the dominion. Um, And he's, as we know from Acts chapter 3, he's awaiting the day when the Father um, will tell him to act on that authority and put all the enemies under his feet and bring about that restoration to open up that book. The second thing that I think is clear that Jesus' first advent did was um, stay the wrath of God. Another reason Jesus had to come first as a babe in Bethlehem was to absorb the wrath of God. Every single one of us had coming our way. God the Father is righteous and just. He cannot just pretend sin and pain and evil are not there. All the pain and injustice you and I have experienced will not be ignored. All the pain and injustice we have perpetrated will not be ignored. They that would not be that would be injustice all by itself. Um, God, in his infinite wisdom and absolute commitment to justice and righteousness, is filled with wrath against sin and in all of its forms. The Bible makes it clear that each one of us has a store of God's wrath with our names on it because we are sinners. But God, who is also full of 100% love towards us, and Jesus, who is full of 100% love for His Father and us, decided to have all the wrath poured out on His Son, Jesus. So on the cross, Jesus didn't suffer the wrath of God, um, sorry. On, so on the cross, Jesus didn't just suffer the wrath of the Roman guards and the Jewish religious leaders. He suffered the wrath of God, which you and I um, were supposed to have coming our way. Jesus stayed the wrath of God, so we don't have any debt left. Um, and then lastly, Jesus coming as the babe of Bethlehem, it, re, it, did, it began a new covenant. The new covenant purchased in his blood is, is simple. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, can become a part of God's family by believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is a phrase which means pledging allegiance to Jesus, aligning our lives with Jesus and, and his life, um, seeking to be with Jesus and training to be like Jesus so that we can do the things that Jesus did. Um, to those who, who do that, the promise um, is a share in the eternal life of God. And to those who reject Jesus, the promise is a share in eternal death or separation from God. If you don't want Jesus in this life, um, he'll grant your wish and you will be separated from him in what is to come. We really do live in between, in between the first advent and the second. Peter tells us, you know, he gives his reason for why we're waiting. And and what he says is that um, it's so more people can be saved. More people can be added to Jesus' family. But that also means there will come a day when the final person will be added and then the end will come. Uh, the end which is also a glorious beginning for believers in Jesus. Paul says it this way in First Corinthians 15. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortality with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, his first coming. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So I don't know if my answers to these questions are sufficient for you. These answers have been sufficient for me most of the time, but there are still times when they don't satisfy times when I am left with some confusion and frustration with God and his plans. In these moments, I usually just get real still and quiet and say what the angels in Revelation 16 say after so much tribulation has happened on the earth. True and just are your judgments, almighty God. I'll just repeat that. True and just are your, al- al- are your judgments, almighty God. True and just are your judgments, almighty God. And then I'll also kind of speak to my heart and to my soul what Paul says in First Corinthians 13. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. I just kind of let out a sigh in those really confusing times and say, well, I guess I just only see through a kind of dim glass. I guess I can't really see very clearly all of what is to come. But what I do know is that there will be a day when I shall know even as I am fully known. And I long for that day. And the celebration of Christmas on the 25th of December always for me really begins on the 26th through the New Year, um, New Year's Eve and all of that. Just this kind of... um, anticipation and celebration and commemorating the promise that I'm going to get to see Jesus face to face I'm going to get to see him um, returning not as a babe but as a conquering king and uh, all the promises will come to pass at that time what a day of rejoicing that will be God bless you and I hope you have a wonderful beginning to this new year